welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here. And uh, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm actually in the Pacific Northwest. And it's behaving uh, like the Pacific Northwest. It's cold, it's rainy, and uh, the rest of the world is sunny and warm. And I believe it's sunny and warm where you are, Tom. Uh, Tell us about yourself and uh, where you are. West Hartford, Connecticut, where it is sunny right now and pretty warm, (laughs) 70, so I'll take that. (laughs) Um, I teach uh, systematic theology, uh, ethics, uh, philosophy, and other things. One of the places at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And Glenn, you're in Indiana, right? Yes, I'm in Indiana where I'm splitting the difference between the two of you. It's relatively warm, but overcast. Okay. And uh, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and a ministry associate at Reflections Ministry and a retired and recovering history professor. Well, that's a nice segue to the topic of the day because it's my my day. And uh, some folks in podcast land are aware of this. Many folks probably have no idea. But I've been contracted to write a commentary in the book of Acts. And so as I've been working, uh, you know, on my research and as I've been thinking about the subject and doing a little bit of the uh, work of my prolegomena, um, which is a fancy way of saying introduction. <laughs> so as I've been doing that, I've been thinking about history uh, and kind of uh, the crisis that we see in history today. Uh, there was a time not so long ago when people believed that history could be written. Uh, today, uh, there are significant uh, numbers of people who don't think that's possible. And it has to do with kind of the rise of postmodernism and the loss of faith and objective uh, assessments of truth and, and so forth. But as I was thinking about all this, it occurred to me that, that um, I should at least get into this a little bit uh, in terms of helping people uh, understand how to uh, get as much out of the book of Acts as a Christian can and should. And Acts, after all, is a, is a history. Now, if we think about um, the Gospels, uh, they are histories as well. But I think when we talk about the Gospels, uh, we've, we're talking about a, a very uh, sui generis, you know, sort of unprecedented form of literature. I mean, even secular p- scholars think that the Gospels are uh, kind of their own thing. But when you get into the book of Acts, even though you could say, uh, you know, the book of Acts is sort of like this, the sequel to Luke's Gospel. Uh, when you get into the book of Acts, I think people say, OK, the Gospels uh, are behind us. Now we're into this period of time. Uh, with the early Christian movement, and uh, we're talking history now. So as I thought about that, it, I, I, this crisis of confidence in whether or not history is actually possible came to mind. And I thought maybe it would be a good idea to talk about that, the nature of that crisis and then about um, you know what we as Christians uh, should uh, have in mind when we read the book of Acts and why we can you know, receive it as history and as meaningful and as something that we can point other people to and say, look at this, this is, this is what happened and this is what it means. But anyway, so that, that's kind of the, the lay of the land, so to speak. I'll, I'll, I'll think of some clever thing to call this episode, but I'll do that later. I don't have a clever <laughs> term yet. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as I sort of introduce this, uh, are there any initial reactions or responses uh, that, that either of you have to the sort of the, sort of the prospect of what we're going to talk about? 
Well, you know, as a historian, one of the things that is sort of a constant debate, uh, at least it was in my mind, is uh, what is the nature of historical work? You know, as a historian, am I engaged in a social science, as a lot of uh, historians are going to argue that history is really a social science? And I see the, the, the point there, but I've always thought that a significant part of what historians do, or at least the sort of history I do, um, it falls in the category of the humanities because I'm reading and interpreting texts. Right. So it's um, it, it, it as a field, an academic field, it sort of straddles uncomfortably in my mind between those two worlds. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, on the one hand, we're talking about things that actually happened, but on the other hand, the reasons that we know that they happened is because we have these texts that we can refer to, and we have to read them and interpret them, and then try to assess whether or not the, uh, the parties involved uh, in writing those texts were reliable. And even if we did, if, uh, can see that they were, you know, actually on the ground witnessing the things that they're talking about, whether or not they've got personal agenda, you know, that they're pursuing and maybe coloring the, the account uh, in order to uh, further the goal of their, you know, group or their own, you know, like when you think about Josephus, when you think about Josephus, he's, he's acting as an apologist, you could say, mm -hmm. for his people. He's trying to say, OK, this is why, you know, we behave the way we do. Um, and I may not approve of everything that I'm describing here, but uh, we're not, uh, you know, uh, people that are, are unreasonable. You know, we have our reasons anyway. So, you know, in, even in a, in, a, in a case like that where it's pretty evident that there's an agenda, you got to kind of sort out, you know, what is his take on the situation? What may have actually occurred? Can we actually get to what occurred? Um, if all we have are texts or even artifacts from anthropologists, anyway, some thoughts there, Tom. Couple. Yeah. And, and I mean, coming at it from kind of a, a theology of history, if you will, it, it, you know, something that scripture itself attests to. I mean, scripture, you know, we, we as the church read scripture as scripture. We don't just read it as a historical text, although it is also has its historical dimensions. And these the, the there isn't a competition going on. Um, we understand on one order of reality is the creaturely and the historical and the natural and there's levels of causation that are, are legitimate to explore and understand on that dimension of things. But we also understand that in a non-conflictual way, there is a wider metaphysical reality that all history is a part of. History is a creature. And therefore, we don't bracket out the metaphysical and ontological dimensions that Scripture attests to. Rather, you know, Carl uh, Barth used to use the word the sache, the, 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 the reality to which Scripture itself tacitly um, assumes and points to. And so this is why the church, its spiritual reading and historical reading don't have to be in conflict. Um, but what they do is they recognize there is a distinction. When you're looking at the creaturely dimensions, you're not going to read those ontological and metaphysical uh, aspects into it in such a way that you don't allow those creaturely things to really have some kind of creaturely reality that is meaningful and significant that helps us unpack the events and the characters. 
On the other hand, if we leave it just there, we're left with just one flat dimension, a natural interpretation, if you will. And this, I think, sometimes evangelicals in, in modern um, uh, historians or when they look at scripture, they leave it right there as if you can just if you can get in the mind of the author or the community or, you know, the experiences of those around, then you've got a hold of, of the full meaning of a text. And so um, so the significance of history, I think, is important here because and I think maybe that's a good place to begin. What is the Christian significance in light of the book of Acts of history? Yeah, I think that's a great spot to begin. I agree. But let me just kind of take a little detour here because you brought up an interesting sidelight or side road that we could explore a little bit. One of the things um, that many of our uh, friends who, uh, you know, are historians and maybe uh, commentators on scripture who uh, operate in the mode that you just described, uh, sort of uh, this flat kind of uh, approach, which more or less assumes that it is possible for us to get into the mind of the author and into the mind of the protagonists that, you know, are in the, the narratives, that's actually been, been undermined uh, in the academy. Uh, there really is a, has been a loss of uh, confidence in, in the very reality of human nature uh, so that when we, when we talk about, you know, uh, sort of the way history was uh, written for maybe 100 or 200 years, um, you know, sort of the premise was that there is this stable uh, bedrock called human nature that that permit and that the re, that reason uh, is constitutive is part of the, part of that nature and therefore we can enter into imaginatively or maybe sympathetically uh, the lives and minds of the writers and so forth and get back to their original intent and so that was like the that was the the point of reference what what was what was the original intent so this is what we see with the originalist <laughs> with the with our constitution but and but. Uh, for the progressives, for the liberals, as you brought up many times, Tom, this is all in process. We're not talking about being, we're talking about becoming. So, you know, sort of yeah. a Hegelian outlook is like, no, we're very different today than they were. We really can't relate to them. We can't enter into their minds. We can't really know what they were thinking. Not even 200 years ago or 250 years ago is that, can we really mm -hmm. understand what they were, were about? And, and, and why should we? I mean, if, if, <laughs> if they're them and we're us, why should we care what, what, they, what, what matters is sort of the situation on the ground and what we can do with the text that, as, as we have them today. And this is why you get such craziness uh, in the academy and in, yeah. in law and history and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah. uh, so I um, think that, yeah, go, go ahead. Go ahead. What, what you're looking at here is something that Kuhn talked about yeah. uh, in his structure of scientific revolutions, although it, it extends obviously way beyond science, uh, the idea of incommensurable paradigms, mm -hmm. by which Kuhn meant that we all have our, our, our paradigm, our way of looking at the world, let's call it our worldview, and the problem is when you shift from one worldview to another, the worldviews are incommensurable. That is to say, they are not mutually understandable. Right. So if you take Kuhn's idea and you apply it more broadly, not just to science, it argues that we really cannot understand the mindset of people who lived in earlier eras. Uh, yep. because we were in a radically different worldview. And at that point, we're back to our discussion of uh, the Middle Ages from a few shows ago, where um, we were talking about recovering 
a medieval worldview, understanding what knowledge meant to them, things like that. Yeah. So yeah, and I think the, the incommensurability argument would say that's a fool's errand. Yeah, and I think just just quick comment here before uh, you say you have you, you talk here, Tom. I know you've got something you want to say. I think that um, one of the things that it's hard for some of our evangelical friends to accept is that what they what they think is sort of common sense is sort of like the the starting point that everybody should be able to accept is evidence of their naivete in the minds of many people that they're not really taken seriously. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that that everything that they're up to is wrong. And it's not and it doesn't mean that that I I'm, it doesn't mean that I'm not sympathetic to the to the project of trying to get into the minds and understand the original intent of the authors. But you have to, you know, if you're going to be, if you're going to speak to a postmodern sort of intellectual climate, the very first thing you have to do is defend human nature. <laughs> you can't just assume that everybody uh, is on board with that. And so that's not what they do. They, they just assume it. And then they're dismissed as uh, people that are, I guess, uh, benighted, you know, anyway, Tom. Yeah. And, and I, what, something I didn't want to lose, it does tie in, but uh, like Glenn's point, of course, connecting back with, with, classical Christian vision, especially the medieval period. And, and this ties back to your notion of, of how significant prod, uh, providence is for this. And I think I, I may not have been clear enough when I was talking about the non-competitiveness between the historical domain, the creaturely domain, and, and the divine. Because I think one of the tendencies, even amongst Christians today, is to read that relationship between God's action in history and history in a kind of competitive way in which God is externally related to the creation in such a way that it is he is through acts of will imposing himself into the creaturely or um, disrupting. There is a dimension of that because God inbreaks into sin, a world that is that is, you know, imploded with sin, if you will. Um, but it, it fails to recognize God as universal cause, that all things depend on God and all history depends on God for its very what it is, that it is, and that towards from whom, through whom, and to whom. And that ontology governs our understanding of history and should govern any understanding of history. And this doesn't mean, therefore, you're, you're, uh, in, you're, you're imposing an external um, theology onto history. No, you're actually talking about what history is, and you're not. You're allowing history to be free because it has a genuine creaturely reality with its own intrinsic natures, even though they're oriented towards a higher end in the purposes of God. Yeah, and yeah. you run into the problem that you know this is one we've talked about many times: the uh, the issue of divine transcendence. So that the that God is not just the biggest thing in creation; He is outside of creation. He's independent of creation. Creation is dependent upon Him, and therefore, the way God works in the world is radically different from the way anything else works in the world. Which is why we, when we forget that, that's when we get this competition. Well, what happens if I want to do something and God doesn't want me to do it? Does He just force me? not to do it. What if I want to become a believer and God hasn't agreed that I become a believer? Does he block <laughs> me from doing it? You're asking the wrong questions. 
Yeah, there is such a thing as a dumb yeah. question, and that would be one. <laughs> so now, it now ties to this, into the interpretive dimension because you don't need Paul's or or the author to decrease in order for revelation to increase. Um, the, right, by right, interpreting right. the historical reality as the medium through which revel the revelatory communication happens. All of those creaturely aspects are significant and important. And so you can do your, begin your work there, your labor there. Right. Now, um, the, the quest for kind of a objective and scientific uh, history, uh, the quest to sort of uh, drain history of its agendas and just kind of tell it like it was, um, has proven to be uh, kind of a self-defeating project. Um, and I think that, you, you know, well, here's, here's, here's my proposal. I really don't believe history is possible uh, in really much, uh, I guess, I don't think it's, it's possible for a range of reasons without God. Um, and let me explain what I'm getting at. So, for example, um, if, if history is simply a record of events uh, that occurred in the past, um, well, then you're dealing with data overload. <laughs> First of all, there are a lot of things that happened in the past, uh, and you've got to sort them out. You've got to figure out uh, what's more important, what's, uh, what's irrelevant uh, to the point, uh, that kind of thing. So, for example, I, 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 you know, I've been playing with this in my prolegomena, you know, uh, sort of to explain this. So what if George Washington uh, had a blister on his heel, uh, you know, when he was crossing the Delaware? Is, does that make the history book? Um, and, you know, it, it was it was the case. <laughs> it, you know, there, you know, if we, in other words, there's lots of uh, data that has to be sorted through and uh, the salient data has to be emphasized and and developed into a narrative. Now, a narrative, of course, is telling a, a story about something. Uh, are we talking about the founding of the United States? Uh, are we talking about, you know, the uh, the temperature and the uh, uh, and the and sort of the the state of the climate uh, at that time during the revolution? I mean, what, what, what are we talking about? There's a lot of things out there to talk about. So there has to be some uh, sort of, uh, I guess, uh, maybe standard or or rubric within which we sort all of this stuff out. Um, then, it, if you get into that, then you're dealing with uh, meaning. Uh, in in whose whose meaning are we concerned about here? So, for example, for a long time, people uh, just kind of alighted over uh, the fact that uh, Thomas Jefferson slept around with his slaves. Um, he also happened to be the guy who was responsible for drafting our founding documents. Now, for a lot of folks, those two things didn't necessarily conflict with each other, but there are some folks out there who think that those things do. <laughs> it's not as though we, we uh, deny either one of those facts. I mean, I think we have plenty of evidence that, you know, Thomas Jefferson was both uh, a philanderer and uh, a uh, brilliant stylist <laughs> when it comes to drafting documents. Uh, but there is the question of what is this, what do we make of this? How, how do we, how do we tell this story in a way that does justice to all the interests that are involved, not just a particular set? 
And this is where the conflicts come in. I can see, Glenn, you're ready to jump in. Yeah, um, I, I apologize. This is a bit of a tangent. But uh, I have a series of quotes that I used to use in my class on philosophy of history. Uh, Ambrose Bierce <laughs> in The Devil's Dictionary said, History is an account, mostly false, of events mostly unimportant, performed by rulers mostly knaves, or soldiers mostly fools. <laughs> um, and then you have Mark Twain. Then you have Mark Twain, of course. History is just one damn thing after another. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> or you know, you can take that. You, you know, you can take that line from Mac Macbeth: "A tale told by an idiot, full of sound, sound and fury, signifying nothing." And but that's the thing: signifying nothing. Right. Um, yeah. The 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 interesting thing from a Christian perspective here. Well. It, my daughter Elizabeth got her PhD a year ago in biblical studies. And the thing that sort of drove her a little bit crazy is that everybody in biblical studies wants to ask the question, is the biblical text a theological document or a historical document? That or is the problem. The word or is the problem. She said, you know, why can't it be both? Yeah, right. You know? And and yeah. that that is the kind of thing that that we're we're getting at here that that as a theological document, history the, the the biblical text tells us the significance of the historical document. You know, right. it, it 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 works. Right. They, they both work together, and you know the theology explains why the history is significant. Right. Yeah. In, in, in classical ways of doing it, they talked about it as participated history, right? History participates in the the reality vision of what of the Trinity and creation and redemption and the fall. And and so that's that's it. And there is a place for those dimensions, like you said, of 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 getting a hold of the creaturely aspects through creaturely means. We can you know, we can't understand certain events, how they unfolded in kind of through, you know, kind of natural causes, if you will, on one plane of reality. Um, but they participate in more kinds of causes. Um, and, and because of that, and then you also have, you know, the, the I mean, something Christianity brought to the conversation about history. I mean, one is that there is a, also a linear dimension which allows historical work to be done. And it means history is going somewhere. Um, and that somewhere, that end is significant for the meaning as well. Um, and this is something that, you know, historians, if you're not if you're not working with some kind of picture, meaning picture in which there is an end then you are dealing with kind of a historical interpretation of a cycle of returns, if you will. Um, and then, then lastly, you have in Revelation, you have this point where Christ undoes the scroll, which is the meaning of history, right? So even though we can get a hold of some something of history, we still are only getting a hold of, uh, of a taste of that meaning. Yeah, and, I, and, and this takes me where I want to go, and that is uh, history is only possible within a theological framework. Otherwise, it's just simply, well, it's uh, uh, it's just basically pursuing your own goals at uh, the, you know, sort of in using the facts uh, on the ground to sort of undergird your agenda. It's tendentious in character. Uh, 
theology, the reality of God, uh, the, the, you know, the reality that God has purposes, um, that his very being is the ground of creation's existence and is its end, to use, you know, the ontological sort of framework to think about this, uh, to use the sort of the historical framework, the providence of God, uh, this, uh, the, these, these realities are what make history possible because we're looking for uh, meaning in the capital M sense of the word. We're not just looking for what's in it for me. Because if it's, if it's just about that, if it's just a record of my marvelous achievements, <laughs> you know, uh, people maybe who want to be like me or can identify with me will say, cool. <laughs> but people, people who don't like me and don't want uh, to identify me will say, bad. <laughs> you know, it, we're not dealing with re- realities uh, that uh, we all are subject to at that point. We're just dealing with ego trips and agenda. And that's really what uh, kind of history as a discipline uh, with the loss of the theological framework is to kind of devolve to. Yeah. When, when history gets untethered from a theological or, or, uh, you know, kind of transcendent philosophical vision, this is exactly what happens. Everything falls down into the mundane and then the mundane has the inability to, to, to ground itself or its meaning. It is literally nihil or nothing. This was Nietzsche's phrase. And, and the, then it becomes nothing more than a hierarchy of different kinds of powers asserting their interpretation in a conflictual, dominating, oppressor, oppressor, oppression uh, viewpoint. And so they even would argue that our theology is nothing more than a smokescreen for a kind of history that justifies our dominating society and that. But, but again, this, this comes from untethering history from from a, a larger uh, ontological vision grounded in the transcendent. Yeah, and also uh, the um, lack of faith in a God who actually has a, has a way of sort of inserting himself into things. So, um, you know, I've been working my way through C.S. Lewis uh, and his book Miracles here recently, largely because... Uh, the book of Acts is entirely predicated upon a particular miracle, which is the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, which is um, obviously something that follows because of the incarnation. But but just stay with me. <laughs> you know, so we're dealing with this, this uh, uh, event or, you know, I, I think of them as the same thing as sort of in two parts. It's the same miracle in two parts. Um, but, uh, you know, what, what we're dealing with then is is God's uh, uh interjection or or sort of insertion into into the uh, sort of unfolding history of creation the end of creation sort of a uh, preview of coming attractions <laughs> that kind of thing you know and and that is what uh, the apostles have witnessed and they and and they take you know their witness to the various um, you know, courts uh, that are going to judge the, you know, them and their uh, testimony uh, throughout the course of the book of Acts on a one-to-one basis, but also in actual courts. So, um, but, but what you have with that, you know, this interjection is uh, 
the insertion of the meaning or the point or the direction of things, the course of history, and you have the end. So this is the end of the world that, that you, that we have a, uh, you know, uh, some, uh, you know, reason to, to, uh, to, to kind of understand and, and, and sort of, uh, sort of look forward to. So with all of that, with all that in mind, history then has its uh, source of meaning in God and it's objective because the God who interjects himself into history is the God who made the world and is the one who orders all things and is the one who providentially uh, stands above all things. So this is not your agenda, Tom, against my agenda, uh, black people's agenda against white people's agenda. This is just what we're talking about is the big picture. Now, when you lose that, when you lose the ability to talk about the big picture, then it, it has to become just a bunch of dogs tearing at a piece of meat. And that's, and that's what we're seeing all around us. Our society is, is, is pulling itself apart uh, because it's nothing, everything has been reduced to that, to that, uh, you know, imminent plane to the, to the natural yeah. uh, understood as in a sort of this godless mechanistic sort of uh, way. And I, so I'm actually a, a very encouraged in a weird way. I actually think that, uh, what we see in the academy today is the death throes of naturalism. Um, it's going to be a process yeah. that has un it will unfold over you know a, a period of time, could be hundreds of years for it all to play out. But uh, they've got no game. They've got no ability mm -hmm. uh, to, to sort of uh, provide you with any meaning beside do what you want. And we'll all just kind of let each other do what we want. Um, you want to do your thing. I want to do my thing. But now we see how that is a kind of a snake that eats its own tail. Well, what if you want to have sex with somebody else's kids? Um, at that point, people are saying that's too far. That's enough. Uh, and we, and you get, start getting pushback. Um, anyway, uh, other than in the high schools where they are promoting that. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> no. You know, um, what the thing that I'm really struck by as we were talking about this is in the ancient world, the image of chaos, especially in the Middle East, the image of chaos was the ocean, the seas. Right. Because it's constantly in turmoil. You've got waves. You've got all of these kinds of things. If, in fact, you don't have a transcendental end to history, if there is no purpose for it, if God is not engaged in it in some sense, then history is just the sea. Sometimes people are up at the top of the wave. Sometimes they're in the trough between it, but it's just chaotic. It is meaningless and it's just a churn. Yep. Which, you know, I think raises the question, why even write history at that point? And that's what we kind of are seeing uh, play itself out. Uh, or we just end up with particularly, uh, ten, you know, sort of uh, tangential and tendentious uh, approaches to history, like, you know, the history of this particular group or that particular group or this particular oppressed. So, and then it just stops. So, okay, you told us your yeah. tale of woe. Now what? 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 Where do we go yeah. next? Is it just we leave you alone? Yeah. Uh, is that all there is to it? Yeah. And there, all right. Now I got to step in as, as a pro on this one. You know, there, there is a place for analyzing deeply the history of particular groups or communities or things like that. 
there's a purpose to that. Yeah. But it's not an end in itself. Yeah, I think that's what I'm getting at, Glenn. The fact that uh, very few people seem to pursue it as a, a sort of a means to get to something uh, more significant, or maybe maybe that's a bad a bad way to put it, or uh, a means to get to a bigger story. Yeah, there there's a, a particular school of historiography called the Annales School. Um, it's uh, from France. It was uh, pioneered by a journal called Annales. And what they specialized in were micro-histories, where you would look at this, um, you know, a very, very small, very carefully defined project, but you would look at it in detail that was so excruciating that anyone who wasn't an anal historian would probably be driven crazy by it. Um, and But mm -hmm. their point in doing these micro-histories is that if you could accumulate enough of these micro-histories, you could find the macro-history. Okay. You know, that, that was what they were about. Let's analyze. Let's get, let's get all of these details as, as, as finely grained as we can possibly do it. And when we assemble them, a bigger picture will emerge out of it. Now, the problem is, uh, well, there, there were a number of issues with the Annals School. I, I actually had to translate... A, um, a document for French History Journal once where they were talking about tree <laughs> festivals during the French Revolution. And, and, you know, so we're going along and he's this, the, the author is discussing these tree festivals and all of a sudden he's back in the Visigothic period where the Visigoths controlled southern <laughs> France and it was in the areas where the Visigoths were that you find these tree festivals during the revolution. And so he makes this argument for a deep history going back to the Visigoths. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> so anyway, so, so there, 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 are, there are issues with the Annales School, but there are some really worthwhile things that come out of that approach too. We can't throw the whole thing out, is, I guess yeah. is what I'm trying to make. Yeah, I, and I think what... What the doctrine of the incarnation, I think, uh, can help us with is uh, understanding the importance of the full range of human um, life, various social groups, social classes, etc. In other words, there really is a, it, there really yeah. is nothing that's uh, irrelevant and unimportant, but it has to somehow fit into a larger story. And the incarnation, of course, is a very important part of a much larger story about the future of the creation itself and, and so on. But um, I know you wanted to jump in with a couple of comments there, Tom. Yeah, I think connected to the Book of Acts in particular and kind of, um, you know, this the you know, follow up, I guess, with also uh, Luke's gospel and, and kind of the, the interest in certain kind of um, points of emphasis. But one of the things you really see with the book of Acts, and I think that that center of resurrection is very key. I mean, here you are talking about history for the first time ever. So the gospels, the final stage is a kind of the introduction of, of the event of, of um, the resurrection told, you know, from the, the first disciples, their witness, their experience, their encounter. 
Um, but then the book of Acts, you are starting to connect history and resurrection. So you're dealing with, in a participatory way, a kind of history that is happening in the world, but not of the world, you know. Um, and so this is kind of where what God is doing with the church um, is is the kind of the 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 blueprint he has for, you know, creation ultimately um, is the first fruits of a community um, that is in its fullest sense living in relation to the one who has transcended death. And so the kind of history that we are is one that will, if you watch the book of Acts, it unfolds, it starts to include people who were not included included in the old history, right? They were foretold that they would be a part of this, but now they're becoming that. The spirit falls on this group, this group, this group, these that were once upon a time an enemy. So here is a place actually where for the particular languages, cultures, experiences, um, and at this time it, it, it was all of these groups on the whole were probably marginalized groups compared to, to Rome, except for then the spirit also starts converting soldiers and everyone else, right? Um, and so what you have here is something that includes all of that. The story should be a part of reconcile and healing, not just one group's story dominating everyone else, but it doesn't become ideologies and conflict and competition. The unity is this thing that Christ is building. He's building a temple for his dwelling place, and we are building on that cornerstone. Right. So we have our part, our stories, all of these things, but they're built on this larger stone. And I think that's what Acts is up to. And it's, it's a interesting if you think about it, because you're dealing with history in a completely sui generis way. There's nothing comparable to the kind of history we're dealing with here. Yeah. So. You know, there, there's another couple of interesting things about Acts that I don't think people take adequately into account. The most important of them, in my mind, is it ends in the wrong spot. Okay. What do you mean? Um, you know, you, you, get, you get to Paul arriving in Rome, and it just stops. It doesn't tell you the end of the story. Right. I mean, it is, it, it, you know, uh, from the perspective of a storyteller, it is ending in the wrong spot. Right. And that, to me, I mean, there's a theory out there, and I think I... I, I pretty much convinced by this just because of the literary structure of it, that Luke actually wrote Acts as sort of a legal brief for Paul. Okay, that's which, an interesting theory. Which would explain why it is that it ends where it ends, because yeah. otherwise it's inexplicable. Well, I've got a, I've got a, uh, you're, you're actually kind of, uh, you know, getting into an area that I've been doing a little reflecting on, and I don't have a fully developed uh, sort of a statement at this point, but the, the, I'll need, let me kind of give you a sense of where I'm going with it. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, the Aeneid uh, ends in the same way. It, it ends on a cliffhanger. You know, you've got this, basically, you, ne you never see the final act in the Aeneid. The Aeneid, everything is building toward this marriage, right? So you get the death of Turnus with Aeneas, you know, at the very end of the book, and then it stops. You know, uh, quite inconveniently. I think that's because Virgil died, wasn't it? That's it. But I think that's a providential thing. I think, I think that, you know, there's something going on with the fact that, that um, Virgil dies at just that point with the instructions, if I die, destroy this letter. <laughs> it's, you, you remember, remember the, uh, 
you know, uh, Mission Impossible, once you finish listening to this, destroy this tape. That's actually what Aeneas or what Virgil <laughs> said, please destroy what I wrote. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about why he why he told people to do that. And, and as we not we I, I'm grateful that Augustus stepped in and said, no, you're not going to do that. I paid good money for that document. <laughs> you know, we're not going to do that. <laughs> but there's a sense in which uh, an end, a, a book without a, a final resolution implies the story is still going on, that there's a sense of which, you know, you know, there are people who are carrying forward the story. So I, I think in God's wisdom, um, you know, the story ends the way it does so that we don't have this kind of denouement. There is this open endedness. Yeah. Can I add one more component to that? Sure. Uh, contrary to our dispensational friends, um, the kingdom <laughs> is not on hold. The last right. verse in the book of Acts talks about Paul speaking to everyone he, who comes to him about the kingdom. Right. So that was that, that was the other sort of key thing in my mind here, that, that very last verse that talks about Paul is proclaiming the kingdom while he's in Rome. And that, that kingdom is still advancing and growing today. Yeah, I think that's right. So uh, let me let me throw out here for our consideration uh, uh, something that I'm playing with, a way of describing or discussing this uh, set of uh, realities that we've been considering. So um, when we think about, and I know you push back against this a little bit, uh, Glenn, because of certain controversies that exist today with regard to literature. But um, mm -hmm. if uh, history uh, has a purpose and an end, and God providentially orders it, in a, in a way, uh, we can say that God's authority is reflected in his authorship of history. And that history is just kind of a, a kind of a fact. It's not something that we actually make up. What we make up are kind of literary uh, treatments of the of the of the big story. So God is telling the story, and the, what what historians are doing is literary criticism, in a sense. And what we have with Luke is a divinely inspired literary criticism of what God is up to. So God not only uh, is doing what God what only God can do, which is ordering history or not, not, not just that, but creating the very conditions in which history can occur, <laughs> the creation, ordering it and giving it its end in the resurrection. Um, and then um, inspiring his apostles to announce the end of history and uh, helping Luke and inspiring Luke to do all the work that needs to be done in order to sort it all out and present it uh, in a record. So in other words, um, the comments that uh, Luke uh, makes on this uh, series of events are authoritative in the sense that the one who is behind the events is also the one behind the, the, the record. And that's why we can trust the record, because the same author is behind both the events and the record that we have. So with that in mind, you know, what my commentary is, is uh, 
a commentary on the commentary or, <laughs> you know, a literary uh, criticism of literary criticism or, or historical criticism or whatever you want to call it. But it's kind of where I'm, where I'm, I'm going with things to sort of bring things together as I talk about them. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, the first thing that comes to mind immediately is the deconstructionists who viewed everything as a text. Um, the term text was so broad as to be virtually meaningless to them. And literally everything then became an exercise in literary criticism. But they had no standard by which to measure their literary criticism except their own. Right. So it tended to be dense and opaque and not terribly helpful. Um, it also ties in very closely with the hermeneutics of suspicion that we did a show about a while ago. Um, the idea of viewing acts or the scriptures in general as, um, you know, certainly God's revelation. And then our job out of that is to create a, a, a way of understanding, a way of interpreting it. Uh, I think that makes plenty of sense. Um, the thing that I find kind of intriguing by that notion about that notion is that if God is in fact the author of all history, not just that recorded in scripture, then the multiplicity of approaches that we can use to make sense of that history, economic history, social history, cultural history, uh, political history, military history, on and on and on, that multiplicity of approaches is perfectly appropriate because none of them are going to be complete because none of us are infinite, only God is. And therefore, the range of approaches that we can take in interpreting history is just simply reflecting different facets of what God is already doing in the world, um, as long as we keep the teleology of what's going on in, in, in our minds as we're moving forward. Right, right. Yeah, I like that. I, I agree. And I was, I'd like to add that, I mean, we, we've, in re dealing with biblical texts, <clears throat> whatever kind of genre we're dealing with, um, we are dealing with it as a text of the church and a text that has to be read in light of what it is. This is why, you know, I think, you know, the healthiest work in theology on the doctrine of Scripture more recently has been looking at it in terms of first principles. Um, you know, what is what is the nature of Scripture? What are its purposes and ends, right? I mean, this, this has to be included, which therefore places Scripture right in the book of Acts, right concretely in what Acts is talking about, the church. Um, which is that providentially ordered community um, brought into being at this time and in, you know, infused if, or with, with the life of the Spirit um, in such a way that our task is we can't bracket out the spiritual from the, the, the kind of mechanical, if you will. Um, and, and so we are reading in communion um, with the Spirit, but not just as an individual, but as part of a communion of saints and across time. So we do read, this is why classic theologians would read everything other theologians wrote, because it wasn't just about piecing together that original history, that being the meaning. That meaning was the meaning for the church. And that, that also um, gains a, a certain um, depth of insight as we commune with other saints, because we are seeing what that text 
communicated in different settings at different times in different places, yet still held together by the providential ordering of God and the church. So it is a theological task where we don't bracket out this, you know, kind of the theological spiritual from the, from the other part of the picture. Um, I remember um, John Webster, before he passed away, was reading uh, a lot of Aquinas, and he said, I've come to realize in studying Aquinas, going back first to his commentaries, because that's where the exegetical work, he goes, but I could never get a hold of it unless I also read his prayers. So there is a, a connectedness with what we're up to. Um, and I think it, you hit it right on the nose when you said the resurrection introduces something here that our method has to kind of be rich, full, not one one level or plane. Right. I think, you know, one of the things I'm kind of reacting to as I begin the, the work uh, on, you know, this commentary is uh, a false dichotomy between history and literature. So um, you've got many evangelicals who place the emphasis on uh, history and uh, consequently blind themselves to the kind of literary uh, sort of tropes that occur within the text because they think, uh, they assume, I should say, that if something uh, has a kind of literary quality, then it couldn't have actually happened in history. You know, for example, you know, with the the healing of Aeneas, this, this is, I've gone there before and I, you know, I could return to it. Um, I really do believe there was a guy named Aeneas and I really do believe he was lame. I, you know, I don't think it's just simply something that serves kind of a, a narrative arc. But I also believe that there's a narrative arc and it, it isn't coincidence that the guy who was healed is named Aeneas and that everyone uh, would have understood in the first century that this is a kind of criticism of the Roman Empire uh, and also a kind of indication that the church is going to be a source of healing to the empire. Everybody would have gotten that. Um, the idea, though, that that this kind of literary trope uh, is occurring in the text from a liberal's point of view is evidence that this is just literature and not actual history. Hmm. And the reason why evangelicals are blind to the sort of literary quality of that, that healing is because they insist that it has to be history. Therefore it can't have any sort of literary meaning. <laughs> so what you end up with is this incredible that, you know, irony uh, where both, uh, liberals and conservatives and the irony is mostly with the conservatives are downgrading the ability of God to be able to pull together meaning and sort of historical fact. The, the, you know, the yeah. fact that you can go to one uh, after another when it comes to, you know, uh, conservative commentary on that episode in uh, Acts chapter nine and the person completely misses the significance that would have been obvious to anybody on the ground in the first century tells me that they have shut their minds off to the sort of sort of intrinsic meaning of events uh, and God's ability to orchestrate things in order to make a point. So um, anyway, uh, that that I think is something that I, I'm kind of kind of working with and sort of uh, attempting to kind of get behind and say, you know, there really is no. Uh, need to choose between history and literature. If history is a kind of literature, God's story that he's telling with the actual events that, that occur in the world, that means everything around us is meaningful. God is doing something that means something. 
And when we write it down and try to, and try to attribute it to, you know, sort of the highest level, you know, meta narrative, as they say, we're not actually committing a crime. We might get things wrong, but we're not just simply pushing our opinions on people. What we're attempting to do is, is yeah. divine, so to speak, mm-hmm. the meaning of history. What, what does this mean? And this is what happens all the time in the Gospels and in Acts. People just, you know, something happens, something marvelous and wonderful. That's another thing. Wonders and signs. It's never just wonders. <laughs> the, the wonders mean things. So it's wonders and signs. Yeah. People say, what does this mean? You know, it's not just, oh, it's obvious. God cares about yeah. lame beggars at the temple gate. No, there's a whole lot more going on. Beggars, uh, la- right. lame beggars right. are not allowed into the temple. They're not even allowed into the temple. If you yeah. read Leviticus, you'd know that. <laughs> so the fact that this guy is healed and goes into the temple and is leaping and praising God is intended to say something about God's power to address uncleanness and bring people into graciously into his presence. But that's completely lost. All we, all, the only thing that we seem to think that this means is that God cares about lame people. Well, of course he cares about lame people. <laughs> but but is, is there more to it than that? Yes, there's a lot more to it than that. But anyway, you get my point. Yeah. Well, and you see that, that, you know, the kingdom of God has come near. I mean, there's, there's your larger meaning, your larger meaning. Um, and there is, there is a hierarchy of meaning going on. I mean, um, they will oftentimes say, uh, this, what you see, this is what was promised by such and such a long time ago, which means there are other, there are other important things and meaningful things, but this one takes on the most significance, um, in light of, you know, this, this particular moment. And I think that's something to keep you know, keep an ear to. Right, right. Glenn? Yeah, so uh, what we're back to is, uh, once again, one of my favorite topics, a discussion of the fact that the world has meaning. The physical world has meaning. History has meaning. All of these things are pointing beyond themselves to greater realities because the world was created by and through the Logos. Right. So everything in the world and everything that happens in the world throughout history is all infused with significance and with meaning. And we have systematically trained ourselves to ignore it. Right. Right. Because we think of the world as just, well, as Macbeth said, a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. You know, it's full of sound and fury. There's lots of things going on we can talk about, mm-hmm. but they don't mean anything. Yeah, and, one damn thing and, after another. Right, as, as, as um, who was it that said that? That was uh, Twain, right? Twain. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the sort of thing Twain would say. <laughs> but but that, what that reflects, but what that reflects is, an, is a sort of uh, a nihilism, a kind of outlook that is not informed by faith, not informed by confidence in God. And if there's anything that the resurrection should communicate to us, if we really believe it, is that history has a point, that it's going somewhere, that it has a future, that the, that the destruction of the world uh, in a kind of eternal night uh, in terms of heat, death, uh, and entropy is not the end. Um, that's the end that people who don't believe in God believe in. And that's why they're at each other's throats. That's why they're out, they're out for power so that they can create their own meaning. Um, whereas we who understand that or know that uh, 
that the account that we've received of Christ's resurrection is trustworthy, believe that um, the, 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 at the end of all things, there will be a great getting up morning as the old, uh, you know, spirituals described it. You know, there will be, um, you know, an eternal uh, set of consequences to all the things that occurred in this life. Anyway, uh, we probably should start pulling this thing in, uh, bring it in for landing. It's like, hey. <laughs> Is there anything you guys want to say as we wrap up? Well, I, I could go kind of on and on about the philosophy of history and, and how to think about it, but I think I've already done enough of that, so I think I'll leave it there. Okay. All right, Tom? Yeah, very similarly. I mean, there's a lot you could continue to say, um, just that, you know, even the nature of what we mean by linear history or so-called literal history, um, all these things need need really unpacking in, in depth. And I, even on a show or two, you can only scratch the surface. But, but I think one of the things that's important is to see there, there are, there's a wide variety of ways in which the church has has dealt with these texts across time, and not all of them we find valuable. Some of them we see as erroneous. But on the other hand, just to shut the door um, and close it off, um, I think is does an un, you know injustice to to um, the, both the nature of the church, providence, and the continuation. We are the continuation of what happened in Acts, and so we are connected to it in a way that does allow us to share and participate in its realities. And so as, as people of the resurrection, um, we can't bracket that out. And I think that's, I think that'd be the point I'd end on. Right. Those are good thoughts. I guess I'd like to just wrap it up with this thought. The God who could raise someone from the dead certainly can uh, orchestrate uh, the, you know, the, the, the course of things and providentially govern all things. Uh, and even ensure that the record of the resurrection that he brought about uh, is uh, trustworthy and faithfully handed down to us. In other words, if you if you can buy into the resurrection, all the rest of the stuff is easy because <laughs> the resurrection is about <laughs> the, the next, you know, the new creation, not this just a continuation of things as they as they stand now. This, it's, this is like a, a picture of the end of all things. Anyway. Uh, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. We really appreciate your interest and support. People give us gifts out of the blue. I mean, somebody just recently gave us a gift of $1,000. Um, and that person, uh, you know, went out of his way or her way to do that. And we appreciate that. And that really came at a very, uh, you know, oper- you know our important moment. We were pretty much at, well, we were down to the bottom of our, of our uh, checking account. <laughs> <laughs> and then that uh, gift <laughs> came in and we were able to take care of some expenses and that was great. So thank you uh, for your gifts, especially thank you to that person who gave that large gift. And, uh, you know, just so you know, uh, we also benefit from your prayers and from your interest and from sharing the show with other people. We're, the audience continues to grow uh, over, you know, week to week. Uh, we see the numbers going up. And uh, we're grateful to God, but we're also grateful to you. Like Tom uh, you know, points out to us, this is not like 
uh, a zero-sum game. If you know, <laughs> you thank God you don't have to thank people too, or you thank people you don't have to thank. God. It's both. <laughs> we need to thank God and thank people. Uh, and uh, anyway, with with those thoughts in mind, uh, we'll we'll just kind of wrap it up for today. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.